Please remain standing for our scripture lesson. It is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. In Puritan fashion, two verses become a whole sermon, so we're looking forward to that. So again, hear these words. Paul writes with a lot of passion. I won't do it justice. He writes, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Amen, dear saints. World without end. Amen, amen. Isn't that beautiful? You may be seated. We are continuing in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, slowing our pace down. The last two sermons have covered quite a bit of ground today, just three verses next week, Lord willing. Sermon on comfort, three verses, 5, 6, and 7. After that, Christmas Eve, some Christmas sermons, and then back into, Lord willing, Second Corinthians on New Year's Eve, the 31st last day of the year. For now, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, thank you that you have always got the right pace for us. We thank you that you have given us the rhythm of life, that many of us here today confess that we believe in God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have said that we believe in the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We have made a number of proclamations, and now many of those will be confirmed in this sermon. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would work mightily in us, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. After a number of verses that reflected some very real pastoral and apostolic angst or anxiety or concern in the life of Paul, he comes here together today to a text that is quite resolution-filled. Now this doesn't mean that the Apostle won't pick up a little bit on this theme again later on, even in this book of Second Corinthians, which he does, but here he puts his mind and heart at rest and ease. And dear saints, we need to do that too. The Lord's Day is a day of rest. It's the people of God, the redeemed, elect church of God alone, that gets to rest and take some ease on the Sabbath day, the day of rest, the day set aside for private and public worship of God, this holy day. And so the Apostle Paul puts his mind at rest too. And that's important because you cannot live in constant, unremitted stress and tension and uncertainty. We must have definitive answers. That's why we're calling the title of this sermon simply Resolution. After a long period of writing concerning the concern about the Corinthian Christians, we see here some real resolution. And you and I need that too. We need determinative answers. How would we feel if we were uncertain about the historical promises given in the Holy Book concerning the first advent of Jesus Christ, coming, being born in Bethlehem, child born unto us, thousand years before it happened, son given to us? 
How would we feel if we didn't know for certain that God had fulfilled all of those promises in that first Advent? We know he did. We're celebrating it even now. We wouldn't feel good at all. And Paul wanted and got resolution. Therefore, let's make it our gospel goal on this resurrection day to be and to know ourselves to be the sheep of Christ's church. Resolution. Looking together at 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 4. Wish to use the outline, feel free. Title, Resolution, Doctrine. Paul's confidence could only be based in God's sovereignty. S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y. Now, how could Paul's confidence be located in anything else? After all, there's nothing trustworthy in us at all. No goodness, no righteousness. Our promises mean nothing outside of Jesus Christ. There's no basis for us to have any integrity whatsoever. We have no truthfulness. All of our honor comes through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Devoid of the presence and power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, nothing in us is good. If Paul was depending on the Corinthian Christians or us to achieve any kind of resolution, he would possess no assurance whatsoever, and neither do we. No grounds for it. Even of God's grace and salvation being wrought in any of them or us, there'd be no grounds for it. If he wasn't able to trust God, the almighty, sovereign, powerful, wonderful, loving, kind, gracious, tender, and merciful God that has shown his love to the whole world in this beautiful incarnation of the Son of God. And this is why we know, without doubt, that Paul's confidence could only be based in God's sovereignty. First, there is no other explanation for this resolution of heart. Now, we just discussed this, but let's pursue it a little further. The whole basis of all false religion... All the religion of all the people fallen in the world outside of the miraculous, supernatural, wondrous power of the true religion, the gospel, in the redeemed church, all of false religion is based on the idea that sinners, knowing they have a problem, can do something to alleviate the problem. Can in some way bribe or soothe or placate the holy and righteous God that every thinking person knows exists. Every atheist knows he exists. Everyone knows he exists. Everyone knows we have to stand before him on the judgment day. So all false religion dares is based on doing something and we can't do anything. That's the trap. That's the problem. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. Now, the issue with all false gospels, deceiving ones, is that they are patently untrue. There is nothing sinners can do to please, bribe, soothe, or placate the holy God. But the Apostle Paul had been dealing with that very issue with the Judaizers in Corinth, who were essentially telling the Corinthian Christians that they could do that. And Paul was all along condemning that gospel warning them, casting it out, being rather harsh with it, of course, naturally. We should be. 
We're warriors for the gospel. This is what we do. He condemned any kind of false religion. The Judaizers are seeking to sell that to the Corinthians. Now, even this week, dears, you and I are going to be tempted again to believe all of these untruths. And it'll come through numerous examples. Worst part's our own flesh. Conceived in sin, in Adam, kind of remembering what it was like before the fall, wanting to go back to a righteousness with God without the Messiah, the Christ's blood shed for us, doesn't exist. There will also be the world, especially the religious world, that will be telling us, do this, do that, do the other thing. You can make your way with God. You can be a person just by acting. And our old wily foe, Satan, which loves all this. But in Christ, let's not fall for any of it. Paul's confidence could only be based in God's sovereignty. There's no other explanation for this resolution of heart. And yet, this did not preclude, P-R-E-C-L-U-D-E, preclude the apostles' many exhortations. Now, the word preclude means prevent or keep from happening. Someone might ask, and legitimately so, they might say, Well, Paul, if you are such a believer in the sovereignty of God, then why did you take so much time and effort in instructing and exhorting the erring Corinthian church? And that's a fair question. It deserves a thoughtful answer. The answer is this. The sovereignty of God is in no tension at all with the means of God's grace. In fact, the sovereignty of God establishes the means of God's grace. What you're hearing right now is one of the primary means of God's grace. The way he speaks the truth to his church so that they're built up in their most holy faith. The very faith we confessed earlier. This is one of the ordinary means of God's grace. Exhortation. Preaching. This is one of the reasons Paul wrote these words to the young minister in 1 Timothy 4.13. He says to him, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Now, when Elder Craig read Scripture today, that's a very important part of worship and church life. The public reading of Scripture to exhortation, which is the same thing as preaching, and to teaching. Devote yourself to these things in the context of prayer. That's what ministers do. That's all they do. They don't do anything else. Everything else is subsumed in that. And that's how a church grows strong, healthy, true, bold, confident, victorious, triumphant, humble, gracious, and pure. In Jesus. In Jesus alone. So this helps explain why the great apostle trusted in and taught the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And he could and would also strongly exhort the Christians in Corinth to steadfastly cling to Christ and reject all the false gospels. Now, they had false gospels in Corinth in the first century. We've got them today. They're the same one. It's never really changed. Poor old devil has very little creativity. It just works. It's all it is. 
works, law, self, dominance over others, lording it over others. Oh, I'm better than that person. I'm more noble. I'm more holier than thou. It's all it is. It's all false gospel with no gospel at all. The true way is the low way, the humble way, the broken contrite way, the way of the low heart. The man in Jesus' parable who says, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. He goes home justified. Where the righteous Pharisee looks at him and says, I'm glad, God, I'm not like that guy. I do everything right. I dot every I, cross every T. He goes home condemned. Look, there's, it's all about Christ, compassion, humility, faith. And even you, the elect redeemed of God, must have the means of grace. That's why you're here today, presumably. Otherwise, you'd be doing something else and having some excuse for it, right? Well, I don't need that. I'm too good for it. I don't really need what God says. I'll just believe his Bible, which tells me these things, but I don't really need to believe it. No. We need the means of God's grace. Without them, we can never know or enjoy this blessed, glorious Messiah. Let's look at these amazing verses 2 to 4, chapter 7, 2 Corinthians, and understand how salvific, which means saving, resolution happens in the faithful church. Now, a lot of people think resolution is achieved through exclusively human agency. So you've got wars here, wars there. You know, there's always wars. Ever since the fall, it's just wars. You got the flood, you got Babel, spread apart, wars. The whole world is at war. Always. Everybody's got their group, this group, that group, this organization, that organization, this identity, that identity, this union, this other organization, whatever. They're not all bad. All split apart, atomized into a gazillion pieces, and God brings it all back together in Acts 2, where the languages are made to understand each other in the gospel of Jesus, in the context of his true church. You're the only hope for the world. Christ is, of course, but you, the community of the true church, are the only place where there's any unity, any resolution. Any goodness. Everything, and there's no hope for it otherwise, dear. So keep trying, of course. We're created in the image of God. Have no choice but keep trying. There'll be centuries of more failures. Just like there have been centuries of failures. But God has broken through in the incarnation. Perfect success. But notice it's not high and mighty, mightier than thou. It's humble and low. It's a manger in Bethlehem. Resolution is not human agency. That's a falsehood. But this doesn't mean that humans aren't, are entirely excluded from the process. God actually does use us and folds us in. 
especially as his church. But we are subservient to the one great divine human, Jesus Christ our Lord. In this light then, let us now more fully grasp how salvific resolution happens in the faithful church. First, through the shepherds, notice the plural there, clean consciences. And consciences is plural. Verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. Now, if you were here last week, you'll notice that we actually ended last week's scripture lesson with that verse. But we wanted to recapitulate it here because it's a hinge verse. It's a bridge between what preceded and now what's going to follow. And in this sermon, when I refer to shepherds, I mean all the shepherds, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and all his duly, truly called and appointed under shepherds, whether it's the apostles, that no longer are, like Paul, or the true ministers in his church, which he's always had, ruling and teaching elders. So Paul could have easily argued here, very easily, that the Judaizers had wronged, corrupted, and taken advantage of the Corinthian Christians. Now, Granted, in this immediate context, he doesn't do that, though he does do that elsewhere. He could have. But the entire claim of the apostle on the Corinthians' allegiance was based on the work of Christ in his, Paul's heart, whereby godly character, true, humble character, was developed in Paul. So he had the right to actually call it. Now, he didn't take credit for that. It's all in Christ. And dears, if you think about it, the Corinthians were not foolish, stupid people. They were pretty cultured, if you will. And they could have easily done the spiritual math in their own minds and hearts and calculated who it was who really loved them, who really served them, who really cared about them, who was willing to suffer for them, who was willing to tell them the truth against all the easy answers of lies and heresies, which anybody can do i.e. the Apostle Paul and his compatriots and his presbytery, or who were the ones who were seeking to fleece them, take advantage of them, take their things, rob them of their freedom, of their Christ, of their joy, of their salvation, i.e. the Judaizers. All spiritual resolution of heart, dears, does of necessity with regard to the true status of souls finally gets settled in the context of the holy Catholic and apostolic church. The ministry and the parishioners together loving each other in Christ. That's resolution. How salvific resolution happens in the faithful church through the shepherd's clean consciences and through the shepherd's wholehearted commitment. Verse 3. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So that's a neat verse. Paul is sold out to these Corinthian Christians. He had invested a lot there. He held back nothing. He was genuinely consecrated to their highest betterment in Christ, which is the best form of love there is in the world. Wanting the best for a human being or a church in Christ, that's the highest form of love. 
And Paul had that. And this is why he was so passionate, so caring in his instruction to them. He desired their very best. And he knew that false gospels weren't a neutral thing, weren't an innocent thing, weren't an innocuous thing. He knew they were lethal things that would rob them of their Christ, their joy, their freedom, and their salvation. He knew that. Now, as a reminder, in this sermon and from this text, we're talking about hoped for and pretty much assured resolution between the great Apostle Paul and the Corinthian Christians. And that would come about through the Corinthians' commitment to Jesus, his gospel, the true church, and Christ's appointed apostles, of which Paul was one of them. And all of that would be greatly aided by the great apostle's sincere love and care that would and did ooze forth from him and his other faithful gospel ministers who served among the Corinthians. Now, it's interesting here in verse 3 that Paul mentions not condemning the church there in Corinth. The beginning of verse 3. A lot of foolish and ignorant people think Paul was kind of a mean, you know, nasty guy. He's just too caring, too passionate, too involved, right? Too judgmental. Well, what's interesting here to consider is contrary to popular belief, it's never the authentic, true gospel ministers who condemn anyone. Instead, it's the feel-good heretics, the religious self-righteous deceivers who make these grand and glorious claims to love everyone, to accept everyone, to care for everyone. They are the ones that condemn people, their victims, to hell. You think there's not a lot... Do I tell the truth or do I exaggerate? I'm not exaggerating. There's a lot at stake. Truth, though, is stranger than fiction. God's truth may be trusted as we fully embrace all of it in the person of Jesus our Lord. How salvific resolution happens in the faithful church? Through the shepherd's clean consciences, wholehearted commitment, and finally, through the shepherd's irrepressible consolation. Verse 4. Irrepressible means unstoppable. Where we read, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Isn't that beautiful? Dear saints, that's pretty much the Christian life, isn't it? Angst, hardship, difficulty, death, valley of the shadow of death, feeling the cold, clammy hand of Satan on your heart, seeking to draw you away, and then the glory of resurrection coming out of the grave, seeing the Son of God risen with healing in his wings, giving to the saints hope and joy and peace and comfort 
in this difficult, dark, dead, and fractured world. This verse really sort of harkens back to verses 8b through 10 of chapter 6 where polar opposites are seen in the one great apostle Paul. Where he says, we're as if dead, but really we live. As if we own nothing, really we own everything. And that's kind of what's going on here. You know, dear son, you know this. The more you love someone, the more you love a church or even a thing, a dog, a cat, an animal, anything. I don't care what it is the more invested you are in that object of love. Naturally, rightly so. And that's really what's happening here with the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians. But none of us can ever, get this now, derive any consolation or comfort from other human, fallen human beings. Please understand that. You cannot derive any essential comfort from anyone other than the one perfect, unfallen, sinless, pristine, perfect God-man, human being, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns forever in heaven with the Father and the Holy Spirit, even now in his resurrected body. All of our relief comes from God through faith in Christ. And all of this solace is applied by the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean people aren't involved in that, because God lets us be part of his glorious program as his church, his family, his sons, his daughters. He lets us share in the wonder and splendor of it. But nonetheless, our firm foundation, as it was with Paul, of assurance of any victory or good, even in the ministrations we have toward one another in and by and with the church, is the absolute sovereignty and power of God. It's not in us. It's not in any other fallen human being. It's all in the triune God, expressed for us perfectly in Jesus Christ. In other words, at the end of the day, it's never really about us, really. It's not about us at all. It's all about Christ. There's... Never forget that. And we're told every day by a thousand commercials, every day we hear how great we are, what we need, who we are, and what, how we deserve a break in every other thing. It's all a bunch of lies. Complete falsehood, dears. There's not a bit of truth in it. You live in a world of lies. Face it. It's all about Christ and his truth, his gospel, his word, his church, his day, his worship. It's not about you. You know, we are wonderful beings created in the image of God. We should acknowledge that. That's a huge thing. Because Christ became a human being, humanity's been lifted above the angelic realm. But that doesn't make us God. We're still contingent created beings. We're nothing without Jesus. He's everything. The reason Paul could rejoice so much even in the Corinthians was because he knew and loved Christ and because he is such a great Calvinist, really. Because he was totally convinced. Sorry about that. Calvinism came many years later, just for your information. But 
He believed that God was truly in control and sovereign. And because of that, even as per that beautiful last verse, 1 Corinthians 15:58b, ending the glorious resurrection chapter, he could say that none of his labors in Christ were in vain. And if you were in Christ, I got words for you. As you love Jesus as a faithful sinning churchman, still sinning every day, hating your sin, despising it, struggling with it, but still, by God's grace, faithful in Jesus as a member of his church, every single thing you do, even tainted with sin, if you do it in any form, in faith and love, is accepted by God. It's not in vain. Nothing you do is in vain. Everything the world does outside of Christ is totally in vain. Let them have their billions and trillions and kajillions of whatever they want. It's all in vain. It comes out to nothing. Zero. No happiness, no fulfillment, no goodness. Nothing. There's nothing in it. It's empty and it's in vain. But everything that you have in Christ is meaningful. Let's do some more application. Comprehend why regenerate churchmen may be legitimately secure. Now, we love our evangelical friends, and we try to help them, don't we? Um, but the evangelical world has kind of abused this word secure, right? You know, eternal security, rather than the better word, perseverance of the saints, the fifth point of Calvinism, so-called. But security is still a good word, and as Reformed Christians, we shouldn't throw it out. We shouldn't say, oh, just because that word gets abused, we shouldn't use it. No, we should use it. Because security is a good word, and applies to a select and blessed group of people. Not to everybody. Not to everybody that raises their hand, signs a paper, throws a stick in the fire, makes a prayer, and thinks they're good with God for the rest of, of their eternal days. That's not true. But it does apply to the faithful church. Humble, growing, loving, sinning, militant church. And in this light, then, let us refreshingly consider why regenerate churchmen may be legitimately secure. First, because Christ will never allow his true sheep to be lost. And this was true even in the Corinthian parish. But think about this with me for a moment. Would the Apostle Paul have addressed all these encouraging and assuring words to professing Corinthian Christians who decide not to bother with going to church on Sunday anymore? What do you think? They're not even there to hear the letter read, right? After the morning worship service, when the officer stands and reads the letter, they're not even there. Did he address these to Lone Ranger, self-righteous, religious people that don't need Christ or his means of grace? No, I don't think so. But to those who, not because there's any goodness in them, not because they're not still sinners, not because they are holier than thou, 
but because by God's grace they've been humbled into love for God through Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus, have been able to be, by God's grace, faithful to their covenantal and baptismal vows, which is a miracle of the first degree. To those people, these promises apply. They do. Forgiveness of sins, salvation, hope, joy, peace, grace, kindness, mercy of God the Father. For sinners who come back to the Father's house every Sunday as provincial prodigal sons, coming back to the Lord. With those people, Paul was with able and credibility to give heartening and resolving gospel expressions. So if that applies to us, we should take that to heart. Now, dears, you know I've used this appellation or this word sheep in this section, and we all know that sheep were not very bright animals, right? So when God calls us sheep, it's humbling because sheep have a tendency, if the shepherd's not immediately around, they'll just follow anything. Oh, here, follow me. I'm going to go over the cliff. Yeah, there's the wolf over here. Let's go walk over and say hi to him. Here's a lion, a tiger, a bear. Here's a storm to walk into. Here's a rock to have fall on us. But there is one great, great exception to this rule about sheep. And maybe this is why God used it. According to Jesus in John 10, 3 through 5, sheep will only follow their shepherd's voice. The under-shepherd, yes, but ultimately, even through the under-shepherd's voice, they're following the great shepherd's voice, Jesus Christ the Lord. Over the cacophony and confusion and chaos of a zillion other words and voices and claims upon you. Oh, follow my way. Take my path. Try it out. This is still a problem. The voices of hirelings and robbers still exist. And that's why Paul dealt with it. And let's discuss it a little bit more in our final point. Why regenerate churchmen may be legitimately secure because Christ will never allow his true sheep to be lost even when they we are tempted by very enticing lies. Now these very enticing lies can be very enticing. What is it, dear, really that makes especially religious deceit so tasty and alluring and attractive to us. Is it not a hearkening back to the first chapters of the Bible? The forbidden fruit of a knowledge that no longer in any way is applicable to us at all. A desire for a righteousness that is no longer in existence i.e. the righteousness of Adam before his fall. A righteousness that is in no way good for us and in fact is not even available to us. I think this is the problem. You know, it's interesting that the whole world can be wrapped up in understanding just the first few chapters of Genesis. 
The primal root of works-based, law-mongering heresies and false gospels is a desire for righteousness aside from Christ. But here's my comfort to you, dear saints in the church who love Jesus, who are either already covenanted in the church or that's your heart's desire. Do not fear. In Christ, it is true, you may temporarily be enthralled with all of these falsehoods, but you'll never succumb to them. You won't. Because God is sovereign. And when he makes a work in you, he never changes it. And you will always return to your shepherd's voice. His saving grace in Christ in you will never allow you to succumb to those errors. Did the Corinthian congregation finally get resolution in Christ, the title of our sermon today? I think they did. But did it not take a great apostle, a bunch of ink, several chapters, a couple of books, to help them get to that point? Did he not have to exhort them and encourage them, despite the fact that he knew God was sovereign? He did. May we today have resolution in our own hearts that we are settled with God in a supernaturally glorious, forgiven, righteous way, a legitimately legal way, where God's holy wrath against our sin has been satisfied by the substitutionary, vicarious atonement of another on our behalf, a perfect God-man who died for us and shed his blood for us, who rose from the dead. Can we have that resolution of heart, that assurance? We may. But it's not through works. It's not through effort. It's not even through love or kindness or mercy. It's through faith. Faith leads to love, which leads to happy, filial, family-oriented compliance to a God, a Father we love. Beloved, resolution is a wonderful thing. Only in Jesus, though, may we have perfect freedom, even in this world, a heart totally liberated. And if you're still struggling with your sin, it's okay. Just keep working. No, work. (laughs) Keep trusting. Keep loving. Keep looking to him who is alone able to give you what you must have. Forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, grace, the church, the gospel. Beloved, it is a supernatural, God-glorifying thing to have resolution of heart. Let's give God thanks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that. It's a wonderful thing. Thank you for this uh, letter of Second Corinthians. Thank you for the way the Apostle Paul was resolute and determined to get to this point where he could rejoice with great rejoicing and yet still uh, love his uh, parish there in Corinth to continue to uh, exhort them, encourage them, and to uh, deal with everything that needed to be. We thank you for this beautiful church that we have resolution in Jesus, love among the brethren, but we never want to take that for granted. For wherever that exists, there is great danger, but there's also great joy. And so we thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.